Wars That Shaped the World uses dynamic, immersive audio to depict scenes of warfare. Listener discretion is advised. En France, ce sont maintenant 6000 hommes de la force d'action rapide qui vont partir sous les ordres du général Roquejoffre, nommé chef de l'opération Daguerre. Some 40 nations contributed to the coalition assembled to throw Saddam Hussein's forces out of Kuwait. From Bangladesh to Honduras, New Zealand to Niger, the most powerful global force seen since D-Day, assembled in Saudi Arabia. Among them, a crucial collection of Arab forces. By late February 1991, after three weeks of round-the-clock air attacks on Iraqi forces in Kuwait and on Iraq itself, it was time for the next phase, the ground assault. There was little doubt among coalition commanders, headed by General Storming Norman Schwarzkopf, of victory. There was, though, plenty of concern over the number of casualties the coalition expected to suffer. The Iraqi Republican Guard units awaiting them were quite simply much more experienced at war, most of them hardened veterans of the Iran-Iraq conflict. The French Daguet Division began the ground assault, General Janvier giving the command. Forward everyone, and good luck. Further along the line, American commanders were more direct. Soldiers of the Victory Division, there will be no turning back when we go into battle. The land war was underway. There would be no turning back. This is Wars That Shaped the World. Ah, 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 ah,
Bob. Where's Dick? He's here, sir. Behind you now. Good morning, Mr. President. Morning, Dick. This is... The news, sir. Things are going very well, Mr. President. Very well. Good morning to one and all, and welcome to St. John's Chapel. Let us begin this fine Sunday morning with a hymn. <laughs> Soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines of the United States Central Command. This morning at 0300, we launched Operation Desert Storm, an offensive campaign that will enforce United Nations resolutions that Iraq must cease its rape and pillage of its weaker neighbor and withdraw its forces from Kuwait. The President, the Congress, the American people and indeed the world stand united in their support of your actions. In the early morning, Sunday, 24th of February, 1991, the still of the Saudi Arabian desert night was disturbed by the sound of helicopters rising into the dark sky. Keeping low, they headed north, crossing the border and heading deep into Iraq. 300 helicopters carried 2,000 troopers, men of the 101st Airborne Division. Inside the helicopters, Paratroopers were crammed together in full combat gear as they flew 80 kilometers behind enemy lines. Their thoughts cannot have been all that different to their predecessors in the Screaming Eagles when they'd sat in their Dakotas nearly half a century earlier as they readied themselves to drop into Normandy and launch D-Day. Below the modern-day Screaming Eagles, the largest invasion force assembled since D-Day was ready for action.
You are a member of the most powerful force our country in coalition with our allies has ever assembled in a single theater to face such an aggressor. You have trained hard for this battle and you are ready. I have seen in your eyes a fire of determination to get this job done and done quickly so that we may return to the shores of our great nation. My confidence in you is total. Our cause is just. Now, you must be the thunder and lightning of Desert Storm. President Bush received first news of the opening stages of Desert Storm on Sunday morning, Eastern Standard Time, after crossing Lafayette Park in Washington to attend a church service in St. John's Chapel. Dick Cheney, Secretary of Defense, slid into the pew behind and slipped the president a note. After the service, Cheney followed Bush back to the West Wing living room in the White House, the president's family quarters. A copy of Time magazine was lying on the coffee table. Cheney flicked it open on a map of Iraq and showed the progress made in the early hours of the morning. It was startling. The two men retreated into a bedroom for privacy, and President Bush sat on the bed as Cheney detailed the rapid advances made by the 101st and the rest of the Airborne Corps. Iraqis ahead! Iraqis! Conditions were dire from the start. Fierce winds and driving rain swept across the desert, whipping up the sand. As the 101st touched down to begin their combat operations, Lieutenant General Gary Luck, commander of the 18th Airborne Corps, gave the order for his men on the ground to advance. It was 4 a.m. It was Luck who some credit with coming up with the original idea for the left hook, the plan to punch deep into Iraq before swinging round and cutting off the Iraqi forces in Kuwait, including the elite Republican Guard. During a planning meeting in the months of preparation, Schwarzkopf and his generals were contemplating the Iraqi defences in Kuwait, absorbing grim-faced the predicted casualty lists. General Calvin Waller, Schwarzkopf's second-in-command, estimated two days to get through the initial defences, six more to overcome the Republican Guard, and at a brutal cost of 20 to 40% casualties. You've got to come around them, sir. Urged Luck, jabbing a finger at the map on the table. That's it. Enthused General James Binford P.A. III, commander of the 101st. That's it. That was it. The idea of the left hook was up and running. In Baghdad, reports were reaching Iraqi HQ of the coalition invasion. It was not a complete surprise to the Iraqi commanders. Iraqi intelligence was erratic. The pages of the Washington Post and New York Times provided much of their information. But they had managed to spot the US buildup in the desert. Yet the Iraqis did nothing. In part because the coalition airstrikes, now five weeks old, made moving large detachments of troops all but impossible. But above all, their response was dictated by the Supreme Commander. And in the tradition of dictators, Saddam Hussein refused to believe what was happening. He would not accept US and French forces had already penetrated deep into his country. When told a French division was spearheading the attack, Saddam replied, attacking or sitting in front of their division and crying. All of this news is wrong, he said. 
It was a view backed by several of his corps commanders. They reported the situation was settled. It was anything but. For the Iraqi commanders on the ground, the reality of the situation was all too apparent. There was no equality in this conflict. There was a very high level of difference and it has never happened in history before. Not even to a major superpower, where the whole world joins in against it. Except for Germany in the Second World War. And even Germany was not alone. The French 6th Light Armoured Division led the attack, tasked with racing across the desert and linking up with the 101st as a stepping stone to the Corps' objective of reaching the Euphrates some 300 kilometres away. Achieve that, and they could block any Iraqi reinforcements sent towards Kuwait. They were to cut Highway 8 and take the supply depot at Nasiriyah, codenamed Orange. This would create a choke point between the Hawar al-Mali Lake and the almost impassable dunes to the south. Iraqi forces looking to escape Kuwait or reinforce it would have to come through there. The French advanced rapidly across the open desert and soon linked up with the 101st. Task one accomplished. Further units of the 101st were helicoptered onto Highway 8. Other units swiftly established a forward supply base. The success in ensuring tanks had enough fuel and men, food, ammunition and water was to become a cornerstone of the coalition's swift success. In Baghdad, meanwhile, Saddam broadcast to his people. The enemy continues to drown in his own blood and shame in front of our units. Despite all that took place, our faithful men were able to drive out the first surprise attack. The enemy's attack has failed completely and the depraved enemy continue calling for help. The situation is under total control. In a country of deserts, his head remained in the sand. On the front line, his soldiers, battered by five weeks of ferocious air attacks, had clearer heads. They wanted to survive. General Luck's forces advanced 170 miles on that fast-moving first day, a day on which thousands of Iraqi soldiers surrendered after brief gunfights. Hit him again! Such was the swift success of the French and US Airborne, General Schwarzkopf decided to accelerate the entire ground operation. To the east of the Airborne advance, Major General Barry McCaffrey was ordered to begin his attack five hours earlier than planned. McCaffrey had been badly wounded in Vietnam. He'd been awarded three Purple Stars and went on to serve in President Clinton's cabinet, but not before proving himself a dynamic field commander. On the eve of battle, he issued the order to his men of the 24th Infantry Division. Soldiers of the Victory Division, there will be no turning back when we attack into battle. And there was not. Their assault began at 3 p.m. on the 24th and never looked back. Attack, attack, attack was the order. One tank commander was recorded on the radio system passing the order down to his men, delivered in his own words. This is what we're gonna do. 
We are going to fight until we fucking die. Now let's go. The Americans used armored bulldozers to break through the Iraqi front line, burying the defenders alive rather than risking their own infantrymen to clear the trenches. I came through right after the lead company. What you saw was a bunch of buried trenches with people's arms and legs sticking out of them. For all I know, we could have killed thousands. The Americans were criticized for reusing a tactic first deployed in the Second World War. Claims of thousands of Iraqi conscripts being buried alive were not borne out when the trenches were dug up after the war, and the US military defense of their tactics was robust. As General Thomas Raine told a reporter during the war, I didn't come here to fight fair. I came here to put maximum destruction on this son of a bitch with as few American casualties as possible. Just keep moving forward. That's what we were trained to do, and that's what we did. Alex Vernon was a tank commander in the 24th. He wrote a diary throughout the conflict and would later write a well-received memoir, The Eyes of Orion, along with four other young lieutenants. Before the shooting began, he noted down his feelings at the prospect of going to war. I'm terrified. I can't handle this. I ain't cut out for this. I ain't cut out for it. All I want to do is cry. Nothing makes sense. I know nothing of the future. Nothing. It is the most terrifying vision. When the attack began, Lieutenant Vernon was at the forefront. The scared young man was replaced by the professional soldier, in charge of men whose lives depended on his choices. I didn't see the sandbag-covered bunker and, and the tank's path until we were too close to fire up on the machine gun, which would have been ineffective against such a deep and fortified position. I couldn't try to dodge it, potentially screwing the formation behind us and allowing Iraqi infantry to pop out of the bunker after we passed, with easy shots at our rear. I could attempt to straddle the bunker, exposing the tank's thin underbelly. Or I could order my driver to aim one tread at the bunker and squash it. Hit the bunker, Reynolds. Crush it. We hardly noticed the bomb. After the initial breach, Iraqi resistance melted. Opposition was largely made up of conscripts who'd little desire to fight had been away from home for months, were poorly fed and equipped, and been subjected to numerous air attacks for weeks on end. After staying alive, their main concern was food. In some cases, groups of Iraqi soldiers emerged from their bunkers, hands up, and chanting, MRE, MRE, MRE. MRE stood for Meals Ready to Eat, the name given to US field rations. Such were the huge numbers of Iraqi soldiers surrendering. McCaffrey's men gathered the Iraqis' weapons in piles, crushed them with a tank, and pointed the prisoners south, having chucked them some MRE. There was no time for anything else. Attack, attack, attack. Smoke up! We reached Nasiriya. Our tanks swore down that river valley. Uh, they couldn't believe their eyes, the Iraqis. 
put an absolute shock and fear into everyone there. McCaffrey's men advanced 75 miles on day one in testing desert conditions. The deeper into Iraq they moved, so resistance stiffened. At Talil Airfield, an Iraqi commando unit, despite being pounded by air attacks, resisted for four hours. And it took a four-hour firefight to take Jalibar Airfield as well. Tanks charged down the runway, shooting up 25 planes the air attacks had missed. At the end of day two, the 24th had destroyed two Iraqi infantry divisions. The original plan for 7th Corps was to launch its assault in the early hours of 25th of February. But as with McCaffrey, Schwarzkopf ordered its commander, Lieutenant General Fred Franks, another Vietnam veteran, Franks lost a leg in combat in Cambodia, to attack 15 hours earlier than planned. Franks had a corps of ferocious firepower. Three armoured divisions, including the British 1st Armoured, a cavalry division and a mechanised infantry division. Franks was a cautious commander. He knew he had to ensure he had two million gallons of fuel per day readily available. All his firepower would be worthless if he ran out of gas. Franks and his corps had been based in Germany, like the British preparing for North European Cold War fighting. He saw the desert as a war of manoeuvre more like naval warfare, and certainly a world away from the type of fighting his men had spent their careers readying for. An erudite, considered man who'd studied 17th century English literature, Franks prided himself on never being rushed into a decision. It didn't always impress those around him. Hell, Fred Franks couldn't make the decision to pee in his pants if they were on fire. Franks' job was to cut off the Republican Guard units in Q8, the meat in the left hook. His move started with the 1st Cavalry attacking near Wadi al-Batin, on the eastern edge of the 7th Corps front, a move designed to fool the Iraqis into believing this was the main assault and keep their attention away from the unfolding left hook to the west. In the west, the 1st Infantry Division, the famous Big Red One, possessor of an illustrious history, having been first ashore on Omaha Beach on D-Day, was to batter the Iraqi frontline. Thomas Rehm, commander of the Big Red One, had studied Israeli tactics in the 1967 and 1973 wars. The key, he believed, was to lead from the front, with less centralized control leaving commanders free to address what's in front of them, rather than sticking religiously to the plan. The plan was to smash a gap in the Iraqi line through which the Challenger tanks of the British 1st Armoured could pour. Passage of lines, as it was called, passing one unit through another while in action, is a complex manoeuvre. The US military had not attempted it since the Second World War, and one practice with the British was described by the commanding officer of the Royal Scots as a shamble. On the less heavily defended west flank, the two US armoured divisions, the 1st and the 3rd, was soon through and driving into the wide open desert spaces. The big red one, meanwhile, deployed tanks with plows, usually used against mines, to bury the defenders in their trenches. 
two Iraqi divisions were crushed by US firepower and aggression. Once again, large numbers surrendered rather than fight. breach had been made, but with an eye on the organization of his forces and desperate to avoid any confusion, Franks reined his men in. On the first night, Franks ordered his troops to hold steady, while his tanks, including the British, progressed through the breach in good order. It was a controversial decision, and one that frustrated Franks' superiors. Schwarzkopf was not impressed. He wanted it done at speed. Speed of attack Schwarzkopf was certain, would cause the Iraqi forces to collapse like a house of cards in a desert wind. The two generals, Schwarzkopf and Franks, did not see eye to eye. Different characters led to contrasting approaches to waging war. In his memoirs, Franks was to describe Schwarzkopf as a chateau general, and added Schwarzkopf was an infantry general who did not understand tank command. I was thinking of 48 hours ahead, I wanted to be in a posture that when we hit the Republican Guard, that we would hit them with a fist, massed from an unexpected direction at full speed. And so what I needed to do was to get the Corps in a posture that would allow this to happen. Schwarzkopf was furious. He ordered Franks to get a move on. The British 1st Armoured advanced into the breach made by the US 1st Infantry, passing a hastily erected sign. Welcome to Iraq, courtesy of the Big Red One. It was a tense moment. The passage of lines was underway. In the dark, in dire weather, with appalling visibility. Fears of blue on blue, as friendly fire incidents were known, nagged in the mind of every commander. As the Queen's Royal Irish Hussars led the way, a large desert fox leapt out of its hole, ran across the front tank, and disappeared into the night. Arthur Denaro, the battalion commander and a hunter back home, ordered his men on. Tally-ho, he barked over the radio. Close behind came the Royal Scots, commanded by Ian Johnston. HR arrived, we were expecting to be gassed. We had three doctors and 19 ambulances with us and we were expecting to take heavy casualties, particularly from artillery and chemicals. We should have been frightened and perhaps we were. As we moved off the MLRS rockets streaked above us and I offered up a prayer. Please God, don't let my vehicle break down again. We were off. The British had genuine fears over how their tanks would perform in the desert but they had three advantages over their Soviet-equipped enemy that were to prove crucial. Firstly, the Challenger's 120mm gun had a significantly greater range than the Iraqi tanks, so could pick off the enemy well before they were able to get close enough to damage the British tanks. And First Armoured were equipped with two key pieces of technology. Their GPS systems meant tank commanders could know their position within 15 metres, while TOGS, a thermal and optical gun sight, was so sensitive it could pick up small desert animals such as jaboas. With visibility frequently poor, it gave them a crucial advantage. Around 3am, the Irish Hussars saw off an Iraqi counter-attack. They were well prepared for its arrival, thanks to TOGS. 
Chris Hammerbeck was commanding officer of the 4th Armoured Brigade. Well, the same battle at night is a curious affair since the action is fought entirely on thermal sites and therefore in green, white and black, which removes much of the drama. You can't see the enemy firing at your own tank, but you are aware that it is happening as a supersonic bang is heard as each round passes close by. A hit on the enemy is simply a black or white spot on the target, followed by a wisp of thermal smoke or whatever. In reality, this hides the catastrophic explosion of a tank, right, with the consequent loss of its crew. For my crew, the battle was a confused jumble of target acquisition, followed by engagement sequences, fin, tank, on fire, small groups of enemy would bailed out with shelter blackness which must have been broken by the flash of our gun. Inside the tank pandemonium raid as targets were spotted and engaged and mixed with smell range from the smoke of the main armament to that curiously acrid smell that humans give off when they are charged with adrenaline and to be frank scared. On 7th Corps' eastern side was Joint Force Command North, a combination of Kuwaiti, Saudi and Egyptian forces. Their role was to guard the east flank of the left hook attack while advancing themselves into Kuwait. Their progress was slow and careful. Next in line were the US Marines, two divisions led by another Vietnam veteran, Lieutenant General Walter Boomer. The Marines were handed one of the toughest tasks one that was predicted to result in the heaviest casualties. Their task was twofold. They were to advance into Kuwait, head for Mutla Pass, and then on to Kuwait City. The attack was supposed to convince Saddam and his commanders into thinking this was the main assault. It was the most obvious route into Kuwait, and the most heavily defended. Next to the Marines, Joint Force Command East, another combination of Arab units, advanced up the coast. The three eastern groups had little tank support. Tanks were a priority for the left hook because they would land the blow to knock out the exposed Republican Guard. But they did have support from fleets of attack helicopters and extensive low-level air attacks, helped by US Special Forces infiltrating behind enemy lines and guiding air support to their targets. Day two dawned with the coalition forces pushing on towards their objectives, exhorted forward by Schwarzkopf. In the far west, the airborne cut Highway 8. The 101st were loaded once again onto 66 Blackhawk helicopters, which flew little more than 10 feet above the desert at 165 miles per hour. Light was fading 
when the pilots lowered the helicopters and the 101st leapt out into the desert rain and mud and sped towards the highway. The mortar platoons set up their weapons with practiced speed, trained on the highway ready for the Iraqi convoys. Alongside them, anti-tank missile crews zeroed in. The brigade commander beckoned his radio operator over and then yelled to make himself heard above the helicopters. Send this, send this. The Screaming Eagles have landed in the Euphrates Valley. Repeat, the Screaming Eagles have landed in the Euphrates Valley. Meanwhile, McCaffrey and his 24th Mechanized Infantry Division began their swing east to cut off the Iraqi divisions in Kuwait. Following Highway 1 and 8, railway tracks and power lines, the division's tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles were unstoppable. The M1 tanks charged down the eight lanes of Highway 8 at 40 miles an hour, blasting Iraqi tanks before they could even be unloaded from the heavy equipment trailers supposed to be ferrying them to safety. The Bradleys opened up with their 25mm cannons. Huge numbers of startled Iraqis fled, as much in surprise at the appearance of US forces so deep within their country. You said, fire! This was not what their supreme leader said was going to happen. Schwarzkopf continued to urge Franks and his 7th Corps to get a move on. They were not matching the pace of the airborne on their west flank. But Franks was determined to stick to the plan. In an image in his head. Of my five divisions bunched into a big fist, ready to slam into the enemy heart. And that was how he was going to advance. Cavalry scouts loaded in helicopters came first, a dozen miles ahead of the main force, which itself advanced in a formidable steel wedge. 60 miles across, 120 miles long, including hundreds of trucks ferrying the three million gallons of fuel needed every day to keep the fist on the move. On the left of the advance, the 1st Armoured Division captured a supply base at Busia and uncovered Iraqi plans for the withdrawal of their forces from Kuwait. The Republican Guard would form a wall behind which the rest of the invasion force would retreat back to Iraq via the northwest of Kuwait. Hearing this, Schwarzkopf urged Franks on, calling his HQ and barking down the line at his operations office. G3, here's a message. Keep pressing, keep pushing. We want the Bobby Knight press. Repeat, we want the Bobby Knight press. Bobby Knight was another hot-tempered leader the illustrious basketball coach of Indiana University, who encouraged his players to never allow their opponents a moment's peace. By the end of the day, Frank's forces had swung into position to deliver the hook. They turned eastwards, ready to take on the Republican Guard, the most feared units in the Iraqi army. The British 1st Armored Division advanced briskly, taking their objectives one after the other. The fighting was fierce but often quickly resolved with devastating artillery support. Brigadier Ian Dury, commander of the division's gunners, saw it as one of the key lessons of the Falklands. The rounds seemed to be falling just in front of us. We heard a great tearing sound as thousands of bomblets began to fall on the enemy artillery group to our east. And this was followed by one of the most awe-inspiring sets of explosions I have ever seen as the enemy artillery ammunition blew up. But not everything was going according to plan. 
On the 26th of February, 8th Platoon of C Company, Royal Regiment of Fusiliers, were loading into their warriors after a successful engagement. Suddenly, Warrior Call Sign 22 exploded. Moments later, Warrior Call Sign 23 went up in flames too. Both had been hit by missiles fired by US A-10 Thunderbolts. Despite visibility then being good, and the recognition panels clearly displayed on both warriors. Nine men were killed, 11 injured. At first, the US Air Force denied responsibility. At headquarters in Riyadh, Chuck Horner, the US Air Force commander, angrily defended his pilots to Peter Delabilliere, the overall British commander. Horner claimed it was mined and left the room shouting at Delabilliere. More than 20 US servicemen had already been killed in blue-on-blue incident, but the immediate British response was to seek to avoid a blame game. Winning the war came first, so the British decided. Any investigation into the tragedy had to come second. It was not the only time the British were on the receiving end of American errors. In another incident, two US Abram tanks fired on a British troop carrier from the Queen's Royal Irish Hussars. Two men were wounded. Fortunately, there were no fatality. Once the shooting stopped, a furious British sergeant stormed across to the US vehicle and hammered on its armour, demanding the crew get out and face up to what they'd done. The Americans refused to even open a hatch. Given the confusion of battle in extreme conditions and the extreme tiredness of the men, it is no surprise mistakes were made. Gregory Fontenot commanded a tank unit. The guys saw things that they expected to see, but they weren't really there. If you see combat vehicles coming towards you, you're gonna do something, and it might not be the right thing. The toughest resistance and conditions were experienced by the Marines as they pushed towards Kuwait City. The oil wells torched by the Iraqis created plumes of dark, acrid smoke that hung over the battlefield. It created apocryphal scenes tanks engaging each other at close quarters, soldiers fighting in hot, dark, hellish conditions. Sometimes it would just be lines of tanks firing away at each other. It was a 360 degree battle. There were so many factors. It was raining mud for crying out loud. We had clouds and smoke that played tricks with visibility. Someone said visibility that night was like looking into a closet with sunglasses on. The Marines advanced steadily. Take them out! Out with the Republican Guard, Iraqi soldiers surrendered in huge numbers. Lieutenant General Walter Boomer was the Marines' commander. The place was like hell. I'm not so naive as to say there were no atrocities, but I'm not aware of one. So I would say that to their everlasting credit. Our troops managed this very well. A great risk to themselves handling the Iraqis that wanted to fight and taking the surrenders of 20,000 POWs. Can you imagine that? I had to provide the bastards with food and water. Keep pressing. Keep pushing. My five divisions bunched into a big fist, ready to slam into the enemy hard. On the 26th of February, the coalition delivered its hook. Euphrates River all the way back to the Saudi border, they turned eastwards, 
ready for the war's decisive confrontation. On the far flank, by the Euphrates, the airborne divisions laid waste to Iraqi convoys on Highway 8. McCaffrey's 24th Division met its most prolonged resistance as they moved to cut off the Euphrates escape route for the Iraqis to the east. Meanwhile, 7th Corps, for all the criticism, closed in on the leading Republican Guard divisions, the Hammurabi, Medina, and Tawakalna. Victory here, and the land battle would be won. not going to be easy. These were Iraq's best and battle-hardened, with considerably more combat experience than the US soldiers about to attack them. They were well dug in, in good defensive positions, and the weather was taking a turn for the worse. Captain Gerald Davey was leading a scouting force against the Tawakalna division of the Republican Guard. His lightly armored Bradleys emerged from a sandstorm face to face with T-72 tanks, and infantry equipped with anti-tank weapons. Suddenly, the enemy was everywhere. To the far left, there were Iraqi infantry as close as 75 meters. Within 250 meters, there were armored vehicles. Within seconds, the brief encounter had turned into a full-fledged firefight. We couldn't retreat. There was no place to go. We were really just fighting for our lives. At this point, it was not quite every vehicle for itself, but it seemed that's what it was. Over the radio, it got very chaotic because people were calling for medics. Davy was fortunate the conditions hampered the T-72s. Their gun sights were far inferior to the Americans. The engagement lasted 75 minutes before Davy could extract him and his men with the loss of two dead. High winds removed the advantage the US tanks had of being able to fire from distance. The wind speeds disrupted their sighting equipment. It meant they had to get in close to engage the enemy. But the US tanks and Bradleys were equipped with thermal sensors, so their weapons still operated at further range than the Iraqis. Peering through their eyepieces, the gunners picked out claret-coloured hulks, T-72s, and opened fire. The 3rd Armoured fought through until the early hours to overcome the Tawakalna division. Further south, tanks of the 2nd Armoured Cavalry Regiment fought a four-hour battle with a large unit of Iraqi tanks. Helicopter support from Apaches and precise artillery fire ensured the cavalrymen emerged victorious. It became known as Fright Night. The Apaches and their pilots swooped down to blast the Iraqi army. The fighting was close quarters and brutal. The Iraqis attacked with rocket-powered grenade launchers, hiding in depressions or behind small rises to emerge when the tanks had passed and exposed their more vulnerable rears. The American tanks machine-gunned each other to knock the Iraqi infantry off. The British 1st Armoured became embroiled in another four-hour battle and had to cope with a sandstorm as they fought, 
but they overcame the Iraqi 52nd Armoured. They too were dealing with huge numbers of prisoners, many of them starving. The British dished out tins of margarine and pilchards and continued on. The weather continued foul and the advance continued day and night. From first-hand accounts of the attack, what emerges most startlingly is the confusion of fighting an open desert with poor visibility on a rapidly shifting battlefield. Patrick Cordingly, commanding the British 7th Armoured Brigade, described one of his staff officers trying to read the instruction manual of an anti-tank rocket launcher via a torch stuffed in his mouth after Cordingly's HQ detachment was warned they were in the path of an Iraqi counterattack with T-55 tanks. It proved a false alarm. Fatigue was becoming a serious problem. A tank commander remembers having his first food for 22 hours. Jam and cheese sandwiches gritted by grains of sand. The crew wolfed them down and pressed on. One CO said he tried to make himself pause before giving any orders over the radio to think through what he was going to say. He was aware of his fatigue and very aware of the deadly consequences to his men if he gave the wrong order or one that could be misunderstood. Towards the inside of the hook, the joint Arab forces had moved to the edge of Q8 city. The Marines were battling to take Q8 International Airport, the first division fighting through the night and into the early morning. The 2nd Marine Division and Tiger Brigade fought towards Mutler Ridge. By the end of the day, it was theirs. And at the edge of the coalition advance, the other joint force of Arab countries reached Kuwait City from the south. Back at the other extreme of the hook, General McCaffrey pushed on towards Basra, a city that was to become so familiar to the British over the following decade. the advance was furious, the fighting frenetic and scattered. The coalition field commanders knew they were winning, but feared what that might mean. Would a desperate enemy resort to desperate measures? As the 24th Infantry closed in on the Hammurabi Division of the Republican Guard, just 20 miles west of Basra, back at Core HQ, they held their breath. Probably gonna get chemmed on this one, Frank said Corps Commander Gary Luck in his southern drawl to his operations officer. Luck expected this would be the moment, with Iraqi backs to the wall, when chemical weapons would be used. But the moment didn't come. Instead, the Hammurabi were shattered by artillery and rockets, and at 3.30am on the 28th of February, broke and fled into the dark. The 24th advanced onwards at speed, simply driving around isolated Iraqi units rather than engaging them, until linking up with 7th Corps along Highway 8. Seventh Corps continued to attack the remaining Republican Guard units. At Medina Ridge, the Guards laid a trap for the US 1st Armoured, concealing their tanks on the high ground. But the advancing US tanks spotted the ambush and attacked. The 1st Armoured Commander radioed his number two, who is leading the most advanced part of the division. Understand we are engaged in the Medina Division. 
Negative, sir. We're destroying the Medina division. The US advance guard were able to open fire at a distance that was beyond the T-72s. Add air support and artillery, and a firestorm rained down on the Republican Guard. Some 300 Iraqi tanks and armored vehicles were destroyed. US losses stood at two, one of which was a victim of friendly fire. It was a crushing victory. To the south, the British 1st Arm had crossed into Kuwait over the Wadi al-Batin and headed for their final objective. In 36 hours, they'd advanced nearly 300 kilometers, destroyed three Iraqi armored divisions, and seized over 7,000 prisoners. The weather was dire. The wind howled, whipped up the sand, and mixed with dark clouds from the burning oil wells. The darkest of dark days. So overcast, almost like Armageddon. Next to the British, the Arab Joint Force Center reached the outskirts of Kuwait City. The Kuwaiti troops took the lead and marched into their own capital to liberate it. By nightfall on 27th of February, barely two days since the ground war had begun, it was all but done. But it was on the road out of Kuwait, the road back to Basra and Iraq, that the first Gulf War came to a grim end. It became known as the Highway of Death, cluttered with row upon row of burnt out, blackened and destroyed vehicles, tanks, trucks, cars, lorries. The Iraqi retreat from Kuwait was destroyed on the Highway of Death. The British 1st Armoured reached the road to be greeted by scenes of utter devastation. It was a scene of pretty nasty destruction. When we got there, there was this chaos all around and the sky was dark from burning oil wells. It was really dark, pretty bloody horrible. If you had to paint a picture of the horrors of war, that's what you would have painted. The international media was showing footage from Apache helicopters of Iraqi soldiers running from convoys being shot up by 30mm cannons designed to combat armoured vehicles. This was seen as a slaughter too far. So on the 28th of February, 100 hours after the land war begun, President Bush announced a ceasefire. Kuwait is liberated. Washington did not want to risk losing international support. Iraq's army is defeated. Our military objectives are met. The ceasefire order reached the men of the 2nd Brigade of the US 1st Armoured at 8am local time. They threw open the hatches of their tanks and Bradleys, flew stars and stripes from radio masts, and from one loudspeaker came a familiar song. The voice of James Brown echoed across the desert. I feel good. There was, though, to be one final battle, one last scene of devastation unleashed on the Iraqi army. General Schwarzkopf pushed his commanders to destroy as many Iraqi vehicles and equipment as they could. Schwarzkopf wanted to end their standing as a threat to any neighbor in the region for years to come. The Hammurabi Division of the Republican Guard, meanwhile, were desperate to cross the Hawar al-Hamar Causeway and get back into Iraq. But the 24th Infantry Division barred their way. Fighting broke out, and the Americans responded in force. 
Apache and Cobra helicopter gunships attacked the Iraqis along with US tanks. Orders were to destroy everything, so that's what we did. It was crazy, it was chaos. Whatever was on the road was a valid target. I shot what I was told to shoot. Who knows how many or if there were any civilians mixed up in the chaos. It's my belief that there were some. General McCaffrey was later accused of going overboard in his response. After the war, he defended his actions to a Senate hearing. My actions were appropriate and warranted in order to defend my troops against an unknown and largely unknowable enemy forces and intentions. That was General McCaffrey speaking earlier today at a Senate hearing. We'll be back right after these messages. Stay with us. New kids on the block. Paul McCartney, Belle Biv DeVoe, With that, the fighting was over. Kuwait was liberated. The war had been won by General Schwarzkopf and his coalition forces, and comprehensively so. It had been done quicker and with fewer casualties on the coalition side than anybody had expected. But could President Bush and the US, the world's sole superpower, now win the peace? Next, on wars that shaped the world. I decided there and then that I trusted them even less than before. My abiding impression is of dislike, distrust, and a sense of all the evil that exists in Saddam Hussein and members of his regime. Wars That Shaped the World was a Goal Hanger Podcasts production. It was produced by Holy Smokes. This series was written by Robin Scott Elliott. It was narrated by Paul Waggett. The producer was Neil Fern. The executive producer was Tony Pastor.